Good morning, Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. Good morning. Kind of. If you're out in the foyer, make your way in and find a seat. We're going to get started this morning. It's 9 o'clock, and I hope everyone's had coffee. If you haven't, there's some out there for you to enjoy while we're here this morning. Uh, if you could just stand up, we're going to start with a worship song this morning. Kind of get us moving a little bit. Not moving, but at least energized. How about that? Ready?
Good morning. You may be seated. Good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and it's good to be gathered with you here this morning. At, at here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, we want to be really about three things. We want to be about reaching people with the gospel, growing to be like Jesus, and then serving others. And so, if you have a bulletin, like you see in that inside page, that there's kind of ways that we do each of those things. When it comes to reaching people with the gospel, I think the best way to do that typically is just being engaged in our neighborhoods, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, building relationships there. So I just encourage you to always kind of, as you live life day to day, be engaged with the people in your kind of spirit of influence. So when it comes to growing to be like Christ, one of the ways you want to do that coming up is through small groups by reading the book Gentle and Lowly Together. And so I know some of you are already planning to do that with your kind of pre-existing small groups. Um, if you are not in a current small group and are interested, there are now little flyers out next to the books back there and on the back table that um, explain or let you know which groups are available and open that you can join their contact information in there to reach out to different leaders. If you're interested in that, um, by all means, take one of those flyers that have the information and see what day might work best for you. You'll notice there's a few to-be-determined things listed on there. I'm working on finalizing a few details. Um, We will hopefully get that finished up early this week, and I'll send an email um, that has all the finalized details about which groups will be meeting. Kind of along, along those lines, one thing I've learned in doing this is that like administrating and figuring out small groups is not one of my strengths. And so if you are interested in helping in that kind of capacity, if you want to reach out to me, I would gladly kind of have someone step into a role, kind of a small group kind of coordinator. Um, so that would be, that'd be great. A uh, couple other ways to serve. I'm going to actually invite Nate Coach up um, to share uh, one of those ways and also share about another group that is uh, starting. Um, So actually two things. One is um, thank you to those of you who have already volunteered to help out with the Three Eagle Half Marathon um, every year since the very, very beginning. Uh, we've put on uh, one of the aid stations, and actually I would say ours is probably the most important aid station. We're the one aid station that gets both the 5K runners and the half marathon runners, um, which also means we're out there the longest. So we have it split up in two um, shifts. Uh, the first one is about 8.45 to, for about two hours, and then the next one. The second one we actually have very full which is awesome. So thank you for all for everyone who did that. We have a couple more slots on that first one. So it's just a couple hours. Um, it's October 9th, Saturday morning. Um, and so if you could sign up downstairs outside the office, there's a sign-up sheet. Um, we'd love to get that um, filled up. And it's a great way to be out in the community. Um, the runners really appreciate it. Um, and uh, it's all the money raised from the race goes back right into the community to help support um, the trail itself and then also uh, the running programs um, in the area. So um, thank you for that. The other thing is, um, and it's been in the announcements for the last couple of weeks. Um, actually, I'm going to start off by reading something. Um, not the Bible, by the way. 
and now I got to find oh wrong page right page it says Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea that house was as Bilbo had long ago reported a perfect house whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all merely to be there was a cure for weariness fear and sadness um, that is something that I would love to have said about my house. Um, so to that end, I am inviting you guys to our house uh, for a group that we're calling The Last Homely House. And in that group, we're going to look at the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And perhaps you've never read them, perhaps you've only ever seen the movies, perhaps you haven't even done that. They are great works of literature. Um, and we know more about Tolkien's writing than perhaps any other author, or about, I should say, his writing process, because he kept everything. And including massive numbers of letters that he wrote to his children, to his publisher. So we have a really good insight into his mind. He was also a um, devout Catholic. And we're going to look at how his faith and his belief in God um, shows itself through his works um, and manifests itself uh, in, in his writing. We're going to use the Lord of the Rings trilogy as kind of our base. But then we'll also look at some of his other works, including The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, um, and some of his uh, letters and, and other things. Um, in the process of going through that, we're going to explore topics like creation, the nature of evil, um, concepts of what Tolkien calls sub-creation, and eucatastrophe, uh, how death is a gift to man, um, and many other things. And that's something that we wouldn't go, how is death a gift? But we're going to explore those topics, and, and it's a lot of fun. Um, so if you, one, like great stories, and two, like talking about God's creation and the uh, just different areas um, that... There's just a lot we can talk about there. Um, and so we're going to do that. Um, I would love to have so many people sign up that we actually have to move it here, which I don't, I guess we could still call it the last homely house, but um, it just wouldn't be in a house. Um, so if you're interested in that, we are going to be looking at God's creation, enchantment, um, what is beautiful, what is good, what is noble. Um, and so I invite you all to that. Um, it's we're going to be meeting every other Monday, starting October 18th. Uh, we're going to meet at 6.30. My hope is to have some of our young people come, too. Um, it would be great for that. Um, so if you have any questions, feel free to contact me. Come see me. There is a sign-up sheet downstairs uh, outside the office uh, for that as well. So thank you. And also this morning we have... If the missionaries here with us, so we're going to watch a short video and then we'll hear from them. It was horrible and it was shocking. And I thought, 
Lord, what are we going to do? You can't believe it's happening. I was angry. It's overwhelming. It's frustrating. And sometimes you just feel like giving up. Walls had to be replaced. Floors had to be replaced. Appliances had to be replaced. Everything crushed and everything came inside. I just couldn't talk. Took this building and destroyed it from top to bottom. Unbelievable. Uh, cars tossed up on top of houses. When the normalcy of life is disrupted, people are left searching, asking questions. Why? Why me? Why now? Why God? And when people ask these questions, we found that over and over again, in every circumstance, in every culture, that there is a mission field opportunity that's open. My name is Mark Lewis. I'm the director of Reach Global Crisis Response. Our approach in responding to crisis integrates several key elements. First, our focus is disciple-making. We're more about the people than the work. So we're going in to build the home, but in reality, our goal is to rebuild the life through Christ. Going in and showing the love and sharing the message to people when they have no hope, when they have nothing. Just to bring that encouragement or bring the gospel to those that don't know is just an amazing thing. So the only permanent thing that we can leave in this world is knowing that people have found Christ. They would pray with us at the end of the day. They always had an uplifting sense of humor or a positive attitude that kept you feeling, okay, we're going to get through this. These people come from all over the country, spend money out of their own pocket to come over here and, and help people that they don't even know. It's just overwhelming, specifically for a pastor, a leader, because you want to help, you want to do something. But with an event like that, there's so much you don't even know where to jump in. And to have a team come in and say, we've been here, we're going to walk with you through this, it was huge. Because of our focus on disciple making, we also place a high value on engaging in long-term relationship with our partners and being present in the aftermath of crisis for as long as is needed. Our goal is to be there for the long term. Um, we don't want to just gut and clean up and leave. We recognize the value in being there for longer. When you engage with people for the long term, it opens the door for deeper relationships and the ability to connect and engage. We had people in Staten Island that came to know Jesus as a result of what we were able to do sustained with crisis response. Because of that partnership, we were able to enter into people's lives and help them for months and years rebuild their lives. We keep telling them, thank y'all so much. And they say, no, we get more out of it than y'all do. I don't understand that part of it. It makes me, you know, want to be a part of something like that. How about now? 
My name is Donna Russell, and my husband and I have been a part of this church uh, well forever since its inception. And before moving to Three Lakes, Doug and I lived in Wheaton, Illinois, as did our dear friends Peggy and Mike Lowe. Peggy and I met in first grade. And fast forward several years, Peggy and Mike were married. Mike ran a construction company in Wheaton. And after raising their three children, they followed the Lord's leading into full-time mission work. Doug and my husband and Mike have been on several mission trips together to Central America. And for the past 15 years, Peggy and Mike have uh, been serving in Greece and in most recently in Panama. And they're now going to share for a few minutes what the Lord is leading to them next. So I, it's my great joy to introduce to you our dear friends, Mike and Peggy Lowe. Thank you, friends. Thank you, Donna, and thank you, Three Lakes Free Church, for allowing us a few minutes of your time this morning. What Donna didn't share in that story is that, oh boy, um, about 32 years ago, this time of year, Donna introduced me to Jesus. I, um, we both grew up in a mainline denomination, and um, I knew a lot about Jesus and God, but I didn't have this relationship with Jesus. So... Here's my great friend who introduced me to Jesus. So um, just that even a challenge to you guys to talk to your friends. And, and look what happened. <laughs> then she sent me around the world, you know, <laughs> through Jesus. But it's a cool thing. So I'm forever grateful. I love her. But also spiritually, my life started because the Holy Spirit chose to use her. So just an encouragement for you guys as you want to reach your neighbors. So, yeah, we've been doing this crazy adventure following God for about 15 years, 14 years. Yeah, our mission, but, oh, yeah. but just as believers, 30 and 32 years. And, yeah, as Donna said, in Greece and Panama. And um, now God has called us to work for Crisis Response, which is a division of Reach Global. And hopefully you guys all know that Reach Global is the mission branch of the free churches in the United States. So we have been Reach Global Missionaries for about six years, um, serving in Panama, and now with Crisis Response. We're just excited to come along for this new adventure. We don't really know exactly what it looks like yet. We're going to start in the beginning of November. We've been here on home assignment in the United States. And um, November 1st, we hope to, or we will start with um, wherever God leads us. We are going on a vision trip tomorrow. Yep, to California um, to check out the situation in Paradise, California after the wildfire that devastated that area three years ago. So, um, yeah, that's where we're headed. Yeah, and um, it's kind of unique because we go in and help, but we we help rebuild their homes, but we're really rebuilding their lives like the the video showed. And we go in for the long term. We're not just going in and, and helping. We go in and actually spend time with people and try to get to know them and lead them to Christ. So that's our big goal. It's always um, people over projects. That's our motto. But I would just like to... Um, yeah, ask you guys, invite you guys to even think about a trip with us to one of our sites. We have, uh, I think we have three sites, or is it four sites right now? 
and you could join in with Reach Global and help uh, serve the local churches in these communities that have been devastated. So uh, we're kind of encouraging Doug and Donna to help lead a trip maybe from your church. Um, and so if any of you are interested, maybe talk with them and we can try to get something like that set up. So anyway, I just thank you for your time and thanks for inviting us. To speak. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to say I left some prayer cards. They're old. They're still from Panama, but our contact information um, is the same, so it's there in the back. This crisis response works by churches sending work teams that come for a week, and they do the work um, to help these homeowners. So um, we invite churches from all over to send a mission trip and um, yeah. Help the local body. It's always through a local church. It's not just crisis response. It's for a church that wants to reach its community for Christ. So, thank you. you. We're gonna we're gonna pray together for Mike and Peggy. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come. We thank you for the way you've worked in in the lives of Mike and Peggy, um, just to bring them to this point, even hearing the work you did through, through Donna in Peggy's life. and um, yeah, We praise you for the work you've done through them and for the way you're leading them now to this next chapter as they go to California tomorrow and um, yeah, just discern what you would have for them next, but that you would give them wisdom and guidance in that. Um, just thank you for the work that this crisis response team does in reaching people with the good news of Jesus by by meeting real practical physical needs um, in areas that are hurting and um, devastated. So just thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for the people you raise up to go on these trips and for that you would work to provide the workers that um, can go and meet needs where they're at and talk to people about Jesus. And we pray you for your work, pray you be with them as they continue on in this work and as they discern what you have next for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand as we continue in worship. Um, I was thinking as everyone's been talking a little bit, yet life has been extremely busy, you know, starting of school and everything. And this week was really, really busy for me. And yesterday I had maybe... There's like a half hour in the afternoon where I was just kind of pulling old flowers out and putting mums in and how um, it was just quiet outside and really perfect September weather. And that stillness was what I needed to kind of reset myself, you know, for the next week. Just that little bit of time where it was still and it was quiet and it was um, just balm for my soul in a little way. And I, that is what this worship time should be for you. It's like a little bit of a reset, a little bit of a stillness. So as we enter into worship this morning, I just pray that you'll find that.
be true of each of us as we build our lives on you trusting that it is indeed a firm foundation we put our hope in Christ alone trust you to lead us in this life in Jesus name Amen may be seated couple of things I failed to mention um, in the announcement time. So one, after the service at 10.30, you will children meet downstairs for, for Sunday school. So if you are visiting and have kids and you want to be part of that, we'd invite you to be part of that. And then at 10.45, we'll meet back up here to just kind of discuss the sermon. If you want to be a part of that, we would invite you to be a part of that. And then following all of those activities, um, our senior group will have their first meeting of uh, its existence that time having a lunch after after cross training and after Sunday school is over so we invite you to stay and be part of that as well um, we'll kind of be planning about what the group will look like in the month ahead All right, so we're picking up our series in Psalms this morning we're in Psalm 73 so I invite you to turn there as you give a Bible if you need one there's a Bible in front of you and a seat back as you turn there, let me tell a little bit about the year 2006 in my life. It was a very time of dramatic change for me. Right? So I graduated high school in 2005. And so 2006 was my first year in, in college and kind of off living on my own. And then the 2005-2006 NFL season, like the Packers finished 4-12, and which is which the first time since I was in kindergarten that the Packers had finished with a losing record. So that's like a big shock to my system. Like pretty much my first time in my memory that the Packers were not good. And then also that year, Google purchased YouTube for $1.65 billion. Twitter launched that year. So like the ways I wasted my time suddenly transformed. But perhaps the most dramatic transformation of all, the most drastic change of all happened in August of that year. So it's August, I'm about to return to college, like I'm going to my second year, things should be a little more normal, right? it's a new football season, hopefully things are going to look better this coming season, so like I'm all excited for this kind of fresh start in August, and then like my world is shaken to its core on August 24th that year, when it's announced that Pluto is no longer a planet. <laughs> like I remember like, like, I remember, like, the planet names, like, in, like, elementary school, I taught, like, my very eager mother just served us nine pizzas, right? That's how you remember the planets. Now it's like, what? My very eager mother just served us nine nothing? Like, what do I do with that? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, Pluto's no longer a planet. And I was, like, outraged and shocked. But, like, once I got over that initial shock, like, you kind of look at the reasons behind the decision, you kind of have to admit, like, it sort of makes sense. Like, Pluto was originally discovered in the 1930s because scientists had noticed that the orbits of Uranus and Neptune, like, didn't quite orbit the way they expected. And so, because of that, they hypothesized that there was this ninth planet somewhere on the edge of the solar system that was big enough to 
impact their orbits a little bit and cause these anomalies. So they did this math, and like they started taking pictures of the night sky where they expected this planet to be based on their calculations. And lo and behold, they found Pluto. There's just one little problem. Right? In order for their math to work, that planet need to be, needed to be seven times more massive than Earth. And so they just, like, but they took a picture, they saw the picture, they looked out, and they're like, oh, there it is. They just assumed that Pluto was, in fact, seven times more massive than Earth. And so there's this object out on the edge of the solar system that's seven times more massive than Earth. Like, of course it's a planet. And so they called it a planet. But then in 1978, we got some more advanced telescopes, and we got a better look at Pluto, and we saw one of Pluto's moons for the first time. And, like, using some math, which I really don't understand, like, knowing the moon was there and Pluto was there, they could calculate Pluto's mass more accurately. And when they ran those calculations, they discovered that, like, Pluto actually has a mass that's 0.2% as massive as the Earth's. And so, like, as our technology got better, we discovered that there are more objects, very similar to Pluto, some almost as big as Pluto, like out in the same general region of space, right? an area known as the Kuiper Belt. So we gained more and more knowledge. And then in 2015, there's the space probe New Horizons, and it spent like six months flying by Pluto and giving us more information than ever before about Pluto. The point of all of that is to say that our perspective of what Pluto is has evolved over time as we've experienced it more closely. When it was just a little dot on a picture that happened to be where we expected a new planet to be, we thought Pluto was a planet. But as we drew closer to Pluto through advanced telescopes and then ultimately through like, more advanced spacecraft, our perspective on Pluto changed. And as our perspective changed, we used that perspective shift with wisdom to better understand what Pluto was. Like I want someone to find wisdom as the skillful application of knowledge. And I think that's what's at work here. As we've gained more knowledge of Pluto, we've applied it in ways that make our description and classification of Pluto more accurate. And the same thing kind of happened in Psalm 73 this morning. In this psalm, the psalmist, who in this case happens to be Asaph, he's going through a hard time. And he's, he's going to have this experience that's going to cause his perspective to be reoriented. And then that reorientation will cause him to grow in his wisdom, and then he will then share that wisdom in this psalm. And so for that reason, this psalm, Psalm 73, is typically classified as a wisdom psalm. It's one of the five kind of major types of psalms that we've been talking about. This is the third sermon now in this kind of brief mini-series through the book of Psalms. We've been looking at one psalm from each category. So a few weeks ago we looked at a royal psalm and then a psalm of praise. And today we have this wisdom psalm. Next week we'll look at a psalm of lament and then the following week a psalm of thanksgiving. But this psalm, Psalm 73, is a wisdom psalm. And the particular piece of wisdom that Asaph gains when shared in this psalm is the wisdom about what it means to be blessed. What does it mean to live 
the good life? What does the blessed life, the good life, look like? That's a question that hangs over this psalm. If we could kind of summarize the whole message of the psalm in one sentence, it'd be this. Coming into the presence of God reorients our perspective on what it means to be blessed. Just like coming into the presence of Pluto more closely through telescopes and whatnot reorients our perspective on what Pluto was, coming into the presence of God reorients our perspective on what it means to be blessed. This psalm is a little bit longer than some other ones, so instead of reading the whole thing from start to finish and then going back and looking at specific parts, like I typically do, like this morning, I just want to walk through the psalm, kind of section by section, and see how Asa's thinking evolved through the course of the psalm. But before we jump into the psalm itself, we have to understand a little bit about where this psalm falls in the broader book of psalms. This is Psalm 73 out of 150, so it's not quite technically the exact middle, but if you look in your Bible at Psalm 73, you'll see the book of Psalms is subdivided into five smaller books. And you see that Psalm 73 is the first book of book three. And this psalm kind of formed a bridge between the first half of the book of Psalms and the second half. So Psalm 1, the very first psalm, the very first lines of that, the book are about how a picture of what the blessed man looks like. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So that's Psalm, Psalm 1. That sets the tone for the whole book of Psalms. Like it's about what the blessed life looks like. And Psalm 73 reiterates that theme by acknowledging that we are prone to lose sight of what God has called blessed. We're prone to lose sight of what God calls blessed and rethink about it in our own terms. And so this psalm invites us to reorient our thinking to be more in line with what God has called blessed. So that in mind, let's jump into Psalm 73 this morning. Psalm 73 verse 1 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So this, this verse kind of is something of a thematic statement for the psalm. And this is ultimately what Asaph wants us to take away from this psalm. But as we'll see in a minute, this is not where his mindset really is at the beginning. This is the big idea. Like God is good to his people. If you're having a hard time seeing that or a hard time believing that God is good to his people, the problem is not that it isn't true, the problem is that we need to adjust our understanding of what good is. And as we see in the next few verses, Asaph has fallen into that trap. He's fallen into a misunderstanding of what good is. We see this in verses 2 and 3. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph looks out and he sees the wicked prospering. And he becomes jealous. He becomes envious. He sees bad people seemingly being rewarded for their misdeeds. And he wondered what's going on. He continues in verse 4. They have no struggles. 
Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up water in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And so verse 10 here, the NIV translates it, their people. Therefore, their people. But the Hebrew actually says, his people. And most other translations translate it this way. Like, Therefore, his people turn to them. And the idea seems to be that God, God's people, are seeing the wicked prosper. And they're being tempted here to become like the wicked. At the wicked proper, God people see it and they're being tempted to become like the wicked. And their conclusion seems to be like, either God doesn't know what these wicked people are doing or he doesn't care. And if he doesn't care and doesn't know, like, why shouldn't I join them? And then so verse 12 proceeds to sum up the problem. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. That the wicked, living wicked lives that are opposed to God, are free of care and are amassing wealth. Their bodies are strong. They get whatever they want. Nothing causes them worry. They're getting richer and richer. And they're inducing more and more people to become like them. They're gaining an influence which leads Asaph to the seemingly logical conclusion of verses 13 and 14. This is Asaph's first conclusion. It's in 13. Surely, in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. Asaph's saying, I've striven hard to live a life of obedience to God. I have tried to keep my heart pure. I've tried to remain innocent. I have sought to live a God-honoring, holy, pure life. And he, he knows he hasn't been perfect. Compared to the wicked, like he looks pretty good. What does Asaph have to show for this pure living? He says, like, constant affliction. New punishments every morning. Asaph's life is hard despite his commitment to God, while the wicked, who openly reject God, are seemingly living the good life. And so these first 14 verses of 73 set up a disoriented perspective. Asaph looks out at the world. He sees the wicked prospering. They never seem to be held accountable for their actions. They prosper. They get away with sin. They are healthy and strong. They have powerful influence. Meanwhile, Asaph, who is doing his best to honor God with how he lived, finds himself afflicted and punished. And according to Asaph, in verse 13, then the only logical conclusion, the only logical conclusion is that it's all in vain. It's pointless to seek to live a God-honoring life. That's where he's at in this moment. And maybe you've felt that at times too. 
Like, it's not hard to look out at the world and see examples of seemingly wicked people prospering. Right? Whether it's celebrities or world leaders or CEOs or like whoever. Like, it's not hard to find examples of people who are doing bad things and getting wealthy and powerful doing it. Well, seemingly good people struggle to get by financially or they deal with sickness or they deal with chronic pain or they deal with broken relationships. And, like, it's not hard to wonder, like, why? Like, what's going on? Recently, I've been listening to this podcast from Christianity Today called like, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It follows the career of the pastor Mark Driscoll as he built Mars Hill Church in Seattle into a hugely influential church. And he became like this incredibly influential pastor among a certain stream of young Christians. Like, I know that because like, I was one of the people he influenced mightily. Like, many of the first sermons I listened to when I, like, the Holy Spirit really got a hold of me in college were Mark Driscoll sermons. Like, like I would binge Mark Driscoll sermons before binging was a verb we used about media consumption. Like, it was just, like he had sermons through, through 10 or 20 or 30 sermons through different books of the Bible. And each sermon would be like an hour and a half long. And I would listen to entire books in a day or two. He's a gifted preacher. Like, no one denies that. Like, he is supremely gifted, which is why I was so engaged with his sermons, and it's why his influence grew. He was speaking at big-time conferences. He had book deals. He was appearing on CNN. And he was just wildly popular, wildly influential for a time. But part of the appeal of Mark Driscoll is that he had this like, bold, direct, sometimes abrasive preaching style. And when you're like caught up listening to it and you're in it, it's like easy to take that. It's just like, oh, he's speaking truth. But it turned out like behind the scenes, he was, he was even more abrasive, even more caustic, and at times downright abusive. And this podcast kind of tracks that progress. To the point that ultimately he was eventually removed from his position at Mars Hill and he lost much of his influence. And so this podcast is primarily there to help us like, try to learn from these events to not duplicate them and try to help churches learn what it means to have healthy leadership. And I do find that helpful. There's also another feeling I have when I listen to this podcast sometimes, and that's jealousy. Like, like Driscoll was like, becoming wildly popular and influential, and he was about the same age that I am now. He published his first book when he was 34. I'm 34 and if I'm being honest, like there are moments when I'm jealous of that success, right? Of the book deals, of being flown all over the country to speak at conferences and to schmooze with other big-name Christian leaders. Like I'm jealous of the praise and accolades he received and of the influence he had. Frankly, I'm jealous of the substantial income he received for all this. Right. And then I'd hear some of these stories in the podcast about this like abusive behavior and this these disingenuous things that he did, and I can't help but think, like, that guy? Like, he gets all the charisma. Like, he gets all the preaching gifts. Like, he gets all the success and all the wealth. Like, I find myself having some of the same thoughts that Asaph has in these first 14 verses. Like, maybe there are people like that for you, too. Like, people you look at and you think, like, why are they doing so well? Like, 
Why are they healthy? Why are they wealthy? Why are they influential? Why is their life so much better than mine, even though I know they're not a great person? It doesn't seem fair. Just notice for a second the assumptions that are kind of baked into that mindset. There's this assumption that like physical health and wealth and power are the things that define what the good life is about. That those are the things that are most to be desired in life. That those are the things that make life worth living. And the lesson that Asaph needs to learn, and the lesson that we need to learn, I need to learn over and over and over again, is that that isn't true. There are other, more important things that define what makes a good life. And we see Asaph begin to learn that lesson in verses 15 through 17. He says in verse 15, If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. So Asaph, in addition to being a writer of Psalms, was also a Levite, a priest, and he is very aware that because of that, he has this platform of spiritual influence. And if he were to express his true thoughts on the matter, like he would be harming those in his spiritual care. He says, I would have betrayed your children. And like all of this conflict in him, as he said, like troubled him deeply. Like he's deeply troubled by all that he's feeling. And we've all been there. We've all had those moments of, God, like, I don't know what you're doing right now. We've all had these moments of being deeply troubled in our souls, where nothing seems to make sense. And for Asaph, the thing that snapped him out of that feeling, the thing that reoriented his soul, what he says in verse 17, that he entered the sanctuary of God. And by entering the sanctuary of God, Asaph had this orienting encounter with God. Asaph starts out disoriented by what he sees going on in the world. But when he enters God's sanctuary, he becomes rightly oriented. When life gets hard or life seems unjust, we have two options. We can look at the challenges and unfairness of life, and we can use them as reasons to push God away. We could conclude that God doesn't exist, or that if He does exist, that He's not particularly loving or powerful. Because if He were, He wouldn't let these things happen to me. He wouldn't let the wicked prosper. And so we flee from God. That's option one. Flee from God. But the other option, when things don't seem right in the world, is to run to God with our trouble and our worries and our concerns. And one of the great repeated themes of the book of Psalms is that it's always better to run to God with our anger and with our hurt and our fear than to turn away from God. Many of the Psalms express emotions that seem to indicate a lack of trust in God. There is anger and there is despair and there is jealousy throughout the Psalms. But one of the truly incredible things about the book of Psalms is that the psalmists are always bringing those emotions directly to God. They come before God and they lay those feelings at His feet. They don't try to hide their emotions. 
They don't wait till they're in a better headspace before they approach God. They approach God with all their baggage, with all their doubt, with all their hurt, with all their anger, with all their fear, with all their anxiety. They bring it to God. So often when I'm feeling those things, especially anger and doubt, like I had the feeling that, like, well, I should let myself calm down first. I should let those feelings subside before I go to approach God again. Like, after all, like, those feelings, right, they betray a lack of trust in God. So, like, God might be disappointed in me for having these feelings of anger or despair. If I bring those emotions to him, that he might be disappointed and angry, and that if he's disappointed and angry, he might make things even worse for me. Like, now, in my head, I know that's not true. Like, I can tell you why I know that's not true a hundred different ways. But in those moments of pain and doubt and hurt, my heart believes those things. And so my heart needs reminders. Like this one and many other psalms. My heart needs to be reminded that it is okay to go to God with those kinds of emotions. And so if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with some of those thoughts, some of those feelings, right? whether it's doubt or despair or fear or it's anxiety or it's discouragement, whatever it is, like, I would plead with you, like, don't push those feelings down. Don't try to hide them from God. Don't run away from God with them. But bring them to God. Bring your fear. Bring your doubt. Bring your pain. Bring your questions. Bring them into the presence of God. Bring them. Or maybe you're here, like, you aren't in that kind of season. Like, maybe you're here and you're in a season of pretty contented trusting in God. Maybe things are going pretty well for you. If that's you this morning, then, like, I have two hopes for you. One, you just take time to praise God that you're in that season. That's a gift from God in and of itself. And then my second hope is that this idea, right, that it is important to go to God with our darker emotions that that idea would lodge itself in your heart for later retrieval. Because, like, even if things are going well right now, we live in a broken, hurting world that all but guarantees that a hard season will come. And when that hard season comes, when we're faced with the choice of what to do with our darker emotions, my hope and my prayer is that you will choose, like Asaph, to bring them to God. We bring them to God by, by approaching God in prayer, by, by reading His revealed Word to us in the Bible. So when these emotions arrive, my hope is that you will run to God in prayer. That you would pour out your emotions to Him. That you would run to His Word to receive encouragement and assurance and promises from it. And when we do that, we draw into the presence of God with these emotions it has this effect of orienting our perspective away from the perspective of the world and giving us a reoriented perspective towards God. We see this happen to Asaph in verses 18 through 28. We read, Surely you place them on slippery ground. That's the wicked he's talking about. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. 
They are like a dream when one awakens. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And so this, these verses, to give us a picture of a reoriented perspective on what is good. And as part of this reorientation process, two things stand out. Two things that need to be reoriented in our lives. The first thing that to be reoriented is our understanding of God's justice and God's timing. Like in verses 18 and 19, it just says, Of the wicked, you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down, how suddenly they are destroyed. And these are the same wicked people that just a few verses ago, Asaph was complaining because they lived in comfort and ease. But now he's gone to the sanctuary. He's had this encounter with God and he realizes that God will not let the wicked prosper forever. His sense of God's justice and timing has been reoriented. He knows, he sees that there is coming a day when the wicked will get the judgment that their wickedness deserves. Asaph comes to understand that God's judgment of the wicked is ensured. It just isn't happening in the timeline that Asaph expected. We read a similar notion in 2 Peter, when Peter writes, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And look, the uncomfortable truth that there may be some of you here, some of you watching online who are like living wicked lives. You may look good to outside observers, but in your heart, like, some of you may know, right? like, you're doing things that are utterly sinful. Maybe it's a pattern of lying or stealing or abuse or lust or greed or whatever it is. Like, you know like, there's something going on in you that you are not living the life God has called you to live. Whatever it is, like, you know you are, in, like, you are in deep and you're like, doing your best to keep this a secret from the watching world. And like maybe inside you're even thinking, like, well, like, I'm doing this stuff, but like, things are going pretty well for me. Like, it hasn't caused me any real trouble yet. God doesn't seem to be punishing me 
punishing me for it, so I'm just going to keep on doing it. If that's you this morning, if you like, are living like, in secret sin, and you're thinking you're getting away with it, just like hear this. Like, if there's a day when God's patience expires, like you are on, as Asa says, slippery ground, that God will catch you down to ruin if you persist, persist in rejecting God and living life as you see fit. But He is being patient with you. Like He's giving you time to turn away from your sin and to repent. He's giving you time. Do not waste that time. Or maybe some of you here are listening and you think, well, like, I'm not that bad. I'm a good person overall. Like I'm not really sure what I believe about Jesus, but I'm a good person, so God is bound to let me into heaven. But the Bible says that any sin, right, every sin, puts us in the category of the wicked. And that God will punish all the wicked. But the good news is that like, the reason God is patient the reason he doesn't judge the wicked as we prefer sometimes is that he wants everyone to come to repentance. Ultimately, because we all sin, the only way any of us can be forgiven, the only way any of us can have hope of eternal life is by trusting in Jesus and by trusting that Jesus, by going to the cross, bore the wrath of God against sin for us. Asaph says that the wicked will be cast down to ruin. But on the cross, Jesus was cast down to ruin in our place for everyone who repents and trusts in him. And so if you're here this morning, either you're leading a knowingly wicked life or you're leading a pretty good life that you think you're just by good behavior you'll get into heaven. Either way, if you've never repented and trusted in Jesus, I just encourage you to do that, to repent, to trust. Repent simply means to turn away from your sin, turn away from your self-centered actions, and to turn to God. There is coming a day when everyone who sins, everyone whose sins are not forgiven, will face judgment. It may seem slow in coming, but that's only because God is being patient with us desiring that we would turn to him in repentance. Like, do not presume on that patience. Turn to him, trust in Jesus, and receive forgiveness. That's the first thing that this passage invites us to reorient, right? To reorient our perspective on God's justice and timing. The second reorientation that the psalm invites us to is to reorient our understanding of what is good, right? Or what it means to be blessed. And as long as we think that the good and blessed life is a, mark, is a life marked with money and wealth and influence, like, we will be disappointed. But when we reorient our perspective to see God's perspective of what it means to be good and to live a blessed life, we will find that life. This is what happened to Asaph here. He says in verses 23 to 26, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion 
forever. Through this reoriented perspective, Asaph gains the wisdom that says that relationship with God is greater than any possessions. That being in the presence of God is greater blessing than anything the world can offer. Or as one commentator puts it, blessedness is more about being assured of God's presence in the midst of peril than about material prosperity. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. No amount of money or possessions will lead to a more blessed life than one marked by walking with God. Asaph says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. No amount of health, no amount of vitality will ultimately lead to the good life if it is not also marked by fellowship with God. And Asaph ends the psalm by saying, But after me it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. The good life, the blessed life, is not primarily one marked by money or good health or by power. It is the life that is lived near to God. It is the life that has made the sovereign Lord our refuge. My hope and my prayer for each of us here, that we would believe that, really believe that, Frankly, like, I have a ways to go. Like, it's easy for me to find happiness in worldly possessions or to try to find happiness in worldly possessions. But my hope for myself and for each of you that we would continually enter the presence of God through prayer, through Bible reading, through fellowship with fellow believers, and that as we sit in the presence of God, that we would, like Asaph, Grow in wisdom. A wisdom that better understands that everything the world has to offer is empty. But that blessedness comes from walking with God. Let's pray. Father, we come and confess to myself how often I'm prone to seek joy and happiness in things that the world offers, in money and possessions, instead of looking for joy in my relationship with you. And God, I pray for each of us here that you would move us, draw us to yourself, we would enter more more deeply into a relationship with you, as we do that, we would see that fellowship with you is the source of the good life, of the blessed life. That though our hearts may fail, we are with you we are in good hands. Even if we have nothing on this earth, that there is nothing on earth that we 
to desire above you. Those are beautiful words. They are words that are easy to repeat and sound good, but would they be true in my heart and in the heart of each of us gathered here? Would we feel the reality of those words and they be true of us? You are more valuable than anything, anything this world has to offer. We all have room to grow in this area, so would you grow us? In Jesus' name, amen. So as you leave here today, would you go experiencing the presence of God, seeking the presence of God when you walk through hard times, trusting Him to orient your perspective to the things that lead to the truly good life. You are dismissed.
off on that second break. Like your break, are you that Emmanuel? And we do that second break. I'm off. Like we're doing two different things there. 